Now, I think when we talk about productivity, a lot of a lot of people don't education doesn't come to mind first of all. It's it's not that people think of tax, people think of you know government spending, you know, really kind of hard economics topics. But you note that education is is a key priority. What what is it that makes? Why is it that we need to focus on education as a source of long term productivity growth? And it's not a coincidence that it's the first item in it, first chapter in the green paper. It is the fundamental. Education is the fundamental. I'll tell you why. Uh, in previous days gone by, there was a, um, a, a, a theme that we should uh, asset recycling, that assets should be recycled to be more productive. Instead of having stagnant assets on the books, we should recycle. The theme coming through the green paper is moving on from asset recycling, asset utilisation. How can we use the existing assets, both public and private assets, better? And assets are not just physical assets. They're not just intangible assets. They include human assets. Uh, and so everyone thinks, as you're quite rightly, about um, regulation, and et cetera. And, and with infrastructure assets, with physical assets, people say, yes, they can be used better. We've got roads that are empty half the time. Why don't we spread the, why don't we spread the uh, usage across? We've got... Um, Buses that are empty half, we've got buildings, uh, we've got operating theatres that are empty. Why can't we spread that? So physical assets, yes, we can utilise them better. Intangible assets, um, information, we can use that better, and some of our recommendations go to that. But I'm of a firm believer that human assets are the key. If we can equip our workers to be more productive, then we're going to get a lot more done. I mean, everybody knows that... Um, the American workers on average can produce in four days what it takes the Australian worker five days to produce. Now, if we can go somewhere towards um, their level of productivity, now it's not just um, the skills, it's also um, capital, uh, it's also regulation, etc. but skills is a major one. And that's why both at the school level and the vet level, the two areas where the state government has a bit of input, there are key emphasis. The state government is the priority, is a primary provider of education, and and the the New South Wales Department in particular is the largest educator in the country by by some way. I would like to go to schooling first, and I think schooling uh, again, I think it uh, sent a very strong message with that being the opening chapter or, or substantive opening chapter. When I when I came through your the report, I noticed that you've really got a discussion around student achievement. Uh, discussion around teacher workforce planning and a discussion around performance management. If I was to kind of group the the major the major recommendations there, and I think they all obviously feed in, of course, to to the question about education outcomes themselves. When you when we talk about this, the observation you make of achievement for students has this persistent downward trend. Funding has this constant upward trend. And a lot of us will scratch our heads and say, well, we were told and we've been told for decades now that more funding is what the school what the school system needs in order to deliver better outcomes. What, why is it that we're in this situation now? Though for those of you that go online and see our report, we show that steadily the expenditure per student has increased uh, over the last 15 years, but the fees and results have all fallen. So, uh, and when I say they've fallen, they've fallen on average, Glenn. And that, there are some schools where it's gone up. Some areas where are doing better. Now, you know what that means. If some are doing better uh, and the average is falling, some are really doing much worse, right? So we've looked at and we'll look at what are the drivers of better education outcomes. Uh, and there's a number of drivers, uh, but our conclusion that it is 
teacher effectiveness that is the, the key driver. The te- we've got to do more to equip our teachers, our wonderful teachers, to be able to produce better results for, our stu- for the students. One of the things, I'm glad you mentioned the, the funding going up and down because with each of our recommendations, we rather than just giving a recommendation, people say, oh, here's the solution, what's the problem? The aim of the Green Paper is to state what the problem is first so then people can see because I think uh, in days gone by we've sometimes jumped to a solution and said, look, I've got a solution for you, this is what we should do, and because the public are not mindful of what the problem is, there's not as much buy-in. So what we've attempted to do with each of the six chapters, uh, uh, whether it's planning or schooling or whatever, is to state where think, where there is a bit of a problem. Mm. When it comes to funding, is is it a, is the is it a matter of so you, you note that the level of funding changes and so on? Is it something wrong with the way that the funding system's working if this is the outcome, or is there something else going on that? Throwing more money at things is not my is not my solution. It may be a solution, but it's not the one I'm primarily looking at. I've got 56 recommendations throughout the green paper, and hardly any of them require big swags of money. They're more let's uh, change the regulations, let's change this, let's change that. And with the schooling one, what we're saying is let's recruit uh, mid-career people uh, into the schooling system. Uh, let's have a system where teachers can get more feedback uh, in relation to to how they're operating. Etc. And let's do more evidence-based uh, research. So uh, my primary aim is not to say, look, let's spend more money on whether it be schooling or on TAFE or on planning or on infrastructure. I'm not here to say let's spend more money. That's for others to do. I do suggest the creation of an instructional lead, a new type of uh, teacher position, because at the moment, um, while entry-level wages um, uh, in the New South Wales schooling system uh, are, are fairly um, a fairly good compare, you know, com- comparable with others. Um, they don't go up as um, uh, they, they. You sort of get to the maximum after about seven years. Whereas in the rest of the OECD countries, and you'd be familiar with this, mm-hmm. group, and it, it it can go up considerably over the period of their working career. Whereas in in our situation, once a teacher gets to the to the sort of the top level after about seven years to get a pay rise, they really have to then go into more administrative type. And we're suggesting the creation of a small number of instructional leads. Awesome. And you're right, The as far as OECD data goes, and there was a new release just uh, just last week or so that pointed to this, this same issue about wage compression and, and that we actually have one of the highest starting salaries but one of the lowest trajectories over the course of, of a career. And we know that over time, of course, we all look we all seek that remuneration to be tied in some way to our performance, and that seems to be something that's that that's missing here. I'd like to drill down a little bit more on this discussion about the teachers' workforce, because what I note in the discussion in the paper is a bit of a change in course from what we've been hearing for the last decade or so. So the main point I want to point to there is that you note that a lot of the policy intervention has focused on restricting supply. So this is toughening up accreditation. It's increasing the the entry re- requirements to become a teacher a lot of a lot of things that we've come to uh, the the education system is coming to terms with and um, and educators have had mixed views about you note that well a statement you make is that attempts to improve teacher standards have conflated accreditation with quality and I think that 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 sort of illustrates that stance of of the supply restriction route you say to boost what we need to do is boost supply instead. So you've 
you mentioned a little bit of there about instructional leads and so on, and, and that's probably something we'll get to in a moment. But how is it that we, why would increasing the supply be a solution to the problem? Well, let, let's take, for example, um, uh, maths teachers, right? Um, there is a shortage of maths teachers in a number of schools. Right? Has been Can for we, a long time. <laughs> right, there has been. Now, you've mentioned COVID. Now, there's an opportunity now. There's an opportunity because uh, at the moment, and even before COVID, there were a, a large uh, cohort of finance executives, middle-ranking finance executives, mid-career, in their 40s, etc., uh, who have expressed interest, I'd like to become a teacher. Now, for those people with a mortgage uh, between 40 and 50 years of age, he or she is going to have to make a pretty big call to become a teacher. So they've got to go for four years to study, uh, and then once they've done the study, then they can go teaching. What we're suggesting in the paper is that these uh, finance executives, hedge funds, managers, etc., they may know a bit about mathematics already. Uh, and so there may be no need for them to learn all the retrain on all the mathematical side. They should just maybe train on the how to be a good teacher or how to get on with parents or whatever. Uh, and so instead of a four-year course, it could be a lot, a lot shorter. So that's uh, that's one of the one of our suggestions in relation to the increasing the, the supply side. You point to the example of Singapore and and it holding a. a essentially an accelerated one-year uh, certification to become a teacher for people that are already mature age and have already been in the workforce already. What other kind of maths proficient uh, mid-career transitions do you do you think? So there's the finance executives and so on, but surely there's there's others that, you know, are, are kind of in more, I suppose, run-of-the-mill occupations that might also have the kind of skills that might be applicable. Yeah, well, I'm not, not suggesting we want run-of-the-mill people in the teaching profession. Uh, what we want people who are well ahead of the mill, mm. right? Uh, and they're the people who are scientists, they're the people who are in a whole suite of different um, different fields. Uh, mainly, uh, I'm focusing mainly on the STEM side again here, but there, there mm. may be others. Uh, but you make, you make a very good point. And I will say, though, that I'll just stress that the 56 recommendations in the Green Paper are not my final recommendations. Exactly the point you've made about Singapore and what are the other ones, that's why I'm opening this up for discussion for the CIS for others to let us know which of these recommendations are the right ones, which are the ones that are not going to get legs, and maybe they can fine-tune them. So on your point, it's a very good point, which other areas rather than maths may be, may be applicable, that's where I'll be starting the conversation and asking the experts asking others who are a bit closer to it uh, what areas could they be. Awesome. And look, they exist. There's there's a range of, I think, and I hope that that comes up in, as part of the further drilling down of recommendations because I think that I think we're onto something there that that, that mid-career transition. I, I, I agree that there's that employment track, I think, is an important one. On the COVID, on COVID so you mentioned a couple of times the, um, the impact of COVID and the way that's changing it. Uh, some of the conditions that we find ourselves in. What do you make of the the adaptation of the education system in schools to COVID and the, the online delivery and, and so on? Is there anything you'd like to elaborate on there that encourages you? I'm very encouraged by many stories that I hear, and it's very difficult for me to generalise. I'm not in the sector. I'm, uh, you know, I'm looking at water, electricity, infrastructure, everything, so I don't pretend to be an expert. Uh, but the, the people that have worked on the paper with me are telling me 
that there are wonderful pockets of innovation that are occurring. Um, uh, and um, people are adapting and they've been forced to adapt. I've, I've heard recently that in some of the, uh, the, the um, junior primary schools, some of the students are in fact learning uh, to read, et cetera, quicker than they were before. Now, I, I haven't tested that, I don't know, but one of the issues that I have noticed though, um, and is the wonderful resilience of the teachers to be able to operate in this new environment. They have, of course, gone from having very few uh, supervisors or people to give them feedback to every parent in the class is watching what they're doing now uh, on the Zoom. Uh, and so they're getting the opportunity to get a, a lot more feedback. Every Many employees like feedback from people, whether they're customers or bosses, etc. And one of the recommendations we've got in there is that there be more feedback uh, from from the classroom so that the teachers can can hone their existing high level of skills to, to the next level that's a positive note and i'm glad i'm glad that there are some opportunities coming out of uh coming out of COVID that, around teaching and and that that certainly supports some anecdotal uh, evidence out there as well onto the performance management side and i think that this was another another area where uh, it was very interesting seeing recommendations around improving the teacher evaluation system. Now, performance management has been a, a, one of those intransigent areas of education reform for quite a long time. What can you explain to, to viewers? What is it that you think is missing in that teacher evaluation that, that needs addressing? Well, I think um, as I get all employees can, I believe, can perform a better job if they get feedback on how they're going. They can tweak what they're doing, and so we're looking to see more feedback for for teachers. So uh, in classroom observation, where I mean, some people say for too long teachers haven't been able to get the feedback. Now we're suggesting that maybe someone could be in the classroom on on occasions in the right context, and that's why we'll be opening up the discussion is how do we go about that feedback. Others are suggesting maybe we get 360 degree feedback on teachers, maybe. Uh, their peers who are, who are in the classroom next door who are here, maybe the parents, whatever, also able to get feedback. Uh, also looking into uh, the measurement. Now, some people will say the teacher who starts with uh, a cohort which um, uh, are, are below um, par to start with, uh, if they can get them, they shouldn't necessarily be measured by the end result, what happens at the end of the year, because they may have started um, at a lower point. So we've got to work out a way the, the value that the teachers added. Uh, I think you made a very good point when you highlighted that the number of degrees or, or qualifications that teachers have is a factor, but it shouldn't be the be all and end all. Just because someone's got three master's degrees doesn't mean they're more effective than someone who's got one. Mm. Quite so. Quite so. For those of us joining us online, please feel free to uh, add questions into the comment box and we can get them to Peter. I'd like to pivot out from schools for a moment and more toward the discussion about VET and, and skills. In that area, I think this is another sector that's been really uh, resistant to reform and change. I noted that, you know, that this issue about skills shortages that's addressed in the paper, of course, that, that's something that's been talked about for quite some time. Why is it that so many skill shortages have been with us for a for year on year? Well, let, let me give anecdotally, I mean, there's evidence as well, but anecdotally, skill shortages. There appears to be, one more reason or another, a bias towards 
university education. They're just, and this is anecdotal, um, and people have said to us in the consultation, look, if a, a boy or a girl's parents were in a trade, they would either join the trade or they would go to university. So there were two paths. But if, uh, if a boy or girl's parents went to university, invariably they would go to university. Mm. So that generally means that there is less supply of tradespeople coming into the system. That's, that's one, one suggestion, right? And as it says in our report, there's skill shortages everywhere from uh, air conditioning mechanics to chefs. So there is a big shortage. Mm. There's also the issue of um, the dropout rate is, has increased dramatically over the last few years. People sign up for an apprenticeship and then they don't like it and they pull out. Right? So we're trying to look at ways, how can we get a, a 21-year-old who suddenly changes their mind, I wouldn't mind getting into the trade. Uh, it's difficult at the moment because the employers would find it difficult to pay adult wages to someone who's a first-year apprentice. So we're looking for ideas in relation, in relation to, to those sorts of things as well. Uh, also, I think we've got to publicise the fact that in a trade, you could um, financially do pretty well if you mm. uh, if you wanted to um, stick it out and want to start your own business, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We're also looking at tying in closer with year 11 and year 12 so they can make a decision uh, at the end of year 10, I want to stay on and do the HSC, but listen, um, can I use some of those points for um, my trade? Mm. So I think it's that's a... A really relevant point. Um, now, school bait the vets offered in schools, but probably still there. I think that bias that you've talked about it that's now emerging out of successive government reports that that came up in a federal government review, and it's been something that's been spoken about year on year. Is it is it a matter of what's driving that the, that reputational issue that that seems to have impacted upon? vet and to some extent to TAFE? Well, I guess that's one of the reasons we've issued the Green Paper to find that out <laughs> and then we can address it. I mean, uh, so, uh, there just seems to, and it, if we had evidence of that, I mean, you talk to people in the trades, they absolutely love it. They, they think this is fantastic. Why isn't everyone in it? Mm. Well, um, maybe the, maybe it's too hard to work there. One of the things we've talked about on, on, on with the pandemic, Glenn, uh, is um, with, with an apprentice, they have to be employed plus studying at the same time, right? Um, and what we're, what we're indicating is that, look, if during the pandemic they've lost their employment, please let them stay on as, a, as a, to do at least the academic side, even if they can't do the hands-on. Uh, pros and cons on that. Uh, a number of people have said, look, there's a risk of that. Of, um, really, they should drop out of the apprenticeship because if they're not doing the hands-on, uh, then that's no good. I, I say, well, why don't we use the opportunity to, for them to catch up a bit, get ahead on the academic side. Um, but I'm a realist. I understand that um, you really do have to marry a bit of both. So we're looking at feedback on that. Awesome. And I hope you get the solutions on that one because it's a, it's a biggie. <laughs> I suppose you, you touched on this a moment ago that salaries paid to, to people in a lot of trade, particularly trades, has as a proportion of uh, vocational trades to uh, university graduates that ratio is is getting closer and closer on average. And many, many people in, in trades are earning considerably more than university graduates and enjoy some of the best job prospects in the country. At the CIS, we, we really value the role of free markets in, and we see the, that markets ultimately will, will match, right? That skills that are in demand will be met with supply. It sounds like there's some sort of failure in this market. To, for want of a better term? 
and, and I guess um, I guess then when we say the market, the market is different components. You've got the the supply market in relation to when they first graduate or they first finish their trade. I think it'd be fair to say when an apprentice has finished their fourth year trade, their their wages are generally not probably not as high as someone who's just finished dentistry, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in the first year out. Uh, whereas after about uh, ten or fifteen years, the 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 some of the trades roles increase the wages can increase significantly, particularly with they own their own business. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we also talk about the free market, um, one of our recommendations, not in the in the skills part, but in another part, is that we be more open to recognising qualifications from other states. So people who have got a trade from Queensland or Victoria, we're suggesting that we should have reciprocal arrangements where they're recognised in New South Wales. Now, um, I, I'm from Holland and uh, we, we, we allow Italian builders and whatever to come in and vice versa. Uh, and I would imagine if, um, if we can do it in Europe, um, and the differences between Queensland and New South Wales are probably not as any, they're no more than between Holland and Italy. Uh, why can't we recognise those? But as you say, there's some people that say, look, the standards in New South Wales are higher. They may argue that. I, I don't necessarily support that. They say the standards for um, particular skills are much higher. If we allow people from other states to come in, they don't have the same uh, level of, of qualifications. Now, that. I think that needs to be tested. Mm. Now, I think that that's something that comes up in uh, teachers' professional standards as well. I mean, it's something that we, I, I think you could probably pick just about any industry and there's some level of regulation that, that seems to change in different um, in different states and, and sometimes we wonder what, uh, <laughs> what's what's fundamentally different about them. Uh, I was well, pleased. Well, let, me, let me give an example sure, on that Sure, go one. ahead, with please. The, um, with the responsible service of alcohol test, so um, a backpacker comes to Australia, wants to work in a bar, they've got to do a responsible service of alcohol test. They've got to do one every, in every state. Uh, and so I thought I might go and do the course. So I went and did the course. Uh, here we are, a middle-aged <laughs> elderly man with all these young, uh, young 20-year-olds. Uh, and I thought, now, why is the New South Wales one so different to the one in the other states? Uh, you would have thought um, if you could recognise one. Having said that, there are slight differences and there's um, – so I guess we've got to get more data on that to see whether we should automatically recognise. It means the person would only be doing one course instead of seven. So mm-hmm. they'd only be paying $180 uh, instead of seven times 180 That's assuming they want to work in more than one state. But I think the point's well made that um, that there are people for, for a lot of genuine reasons that will that will um, work in different states. As say, teachers is another one, virtually all, uh, primary care is and, and so on. Um on apprentices, how are we going to overcome this apprenticeship challenge? I mean, you, you note that the the low rate, the low levels of pay are, are serving as an obstacle. We've now got additional factors, thanks to COVID, that are limiting the opportunities, particularly to get the hands-on hands-on work. How do how do we get through this? We we know we, we can't allow the system to continue to deteriorate for. A series of uh, a number of years because it's only going to put us in really difficult situations. What can we do now to, to tr- start solving that one? Well, there's two, there's two sides. One is the, the marketing, the, the public perception, but that, that to a certain extent will only go so far. The other is maybe to make it a little bit easier and quicker to have a trade. Now, this is another controversial one where we're saying, look, instead of a four-year uh, trade on some of them, maybe it could be done in 18 months or, or, or um, in 30 months. 
Now, again, the feedback we're getting from people is a bit of resistance to that, saying um, you can't train um, a, car, uh, a bricklayer or whatever it is in less than three or four years. Well, let's test that and let's see, see the data that we're getting. But I think, um, and also a, a bit of mobility. Some of the some of the, the vet courses, for example, when um, you do the course and then no one no one advertised they want that. Now, this is not so much a trade, but it's a vet course. So, for example, hospitality. When was the last time you saw an ad uh, for a barista or something that said, we want to see a Cert 3 certificate in hospitality? Mm -hmm. So right. generally, or we want someone who's an expert in customer service, you've got to have a degree or a certificate in, cust in customer service. A lot of those ones are ingrained and, and we probably don't need a, a certificate for them. You probably need more of a certificate in relation to the actual finer technical type skills of being a barista. Look, as someone who used to run restaurants for a part of my career, I, I can definitely agree with you that we never would put out an ad and, and seek someone that that's, uh, that that has a set of specific um, that's got a customer service degree. And as you say, I think that that's a that's one of those things that's learnt on the job. So, and that kind of gets me to you. You know, there's a number of the skills list in particular, and some of the course lists that, and uh, what appears to be. A number of courses which are also appears to be those that are also attracting additional subsidies and so on that don't appear to be those that are really valuable to employers and this means that students are of course undertaking courses that might not actually be very useful to them and their prospects at the moment we're we're, we're as part of the COVID response we've been encouraged to more people to join the vet sector is there a risk that these people are going to be, find themselves funneled towards courses that aren't going to help them ultimately. Well, that, that, that's a real danger. And I think um, what we've got to do is, I mean, we don't want people doing a course in how to be a typewriter mechanic, for example. Mm. I mean, we need to make sure they're current. And one of the one of the um, themes, uh, one of the themes then is, who is the customer in education? Who is the customer? Now, is the customer the, the student? Is the customer the parent? Who is the customer? And I say one of the customers is the future employer, right? Mm -hmm. The future employer is a customer of the VET system and even of our schooling system. So uh, we've got to listen more to the future employer as to what skill sets they want. We don't want a whole lot of, we don't want um, reams of people coming out to be a certain specific designer and there's only one job coming out. So if we listen more to the future employers, and that's where, in some pockets of Sydney, uh, future employers or, or employers have got together with the schools of the year 12s and that and partnered and said, look, these are the sorts of schools we'll want from a, a non-university type um, field. Uh, let's work with them. And they've formed great partnerships. And what we want to do is use this evidence base where things have worked well, roll it out into other ones. There's pockets of absolute real leadership. Do I, is the interpretation around that that, to some extent with skills because of the forecasting nature or the forward-looking nature of making projections about what skills are needed in the future, that you need some level of command and control rather than well, markets well, well, per se? Well, well, you need leadership, uh, whether it's command and control. And one of the things we're thinking, you, you talked about forecasting. Uh, if today we had to forecast the skill sets we needed in five years, uh, we might be in a bit of trouble. Right? So that's why we're calling for micro-credentials as well so that um, someone can do a six-month course uh, at a university or a TAFE or whatever, and they get 
they get a bit of paper that says they've done they've done one component. Now they might start um, in one line, uh, but that that um, that six month thing is not. I've just come back. People are, are pulling out of courses after six months, right, or after a year. Some people pull out with only a few months to go in their their their, their vet certificate, right. What we've got to do is give them credit for the stuff they've already got. That gives them heart, and then they can build on something else. So if somehow we can work out micro-credentials, even if it's a, a specific type of software engineering they get a, a certificate for or something like that, that's much better than saying you've got to do the whole four years uh, and then come out and be an expert in everything. Look, micro-credentials, as you say, I mean, this is some, this is sort of the buzzword of of the vocational training discussion everywhere here in Australia and, and elsewhere, but also something that people are talking about in the context of university education and so on as well, that that we can, that there's a, a range of skills. So if you want to be an economist, there's a few different things you want to do to become an economist. You need to have a bit of micro theory, then you need a bit of macro, then you've got to do a bit of, you know, modeling, but you kind of need to do some of these things in sequence, um, but you may be rewarded for completing components of that. The risk appears to me and that if you're awarding micro-credentials on people that are doing trades work, now that's going to make a lot of sense in some cases because we might be talking about relatively simple procedures. But what happens if we're stacking a bunch of what appear to be relatively small competencies together, but we're missing some bigger uh, factor that might be needed on a work site? That might be a, a safety-related concern that we're putting people onto, say, a job site without having the full training that they need or not feeling, say, I've got a certain set of qualifications, but I don't want to tell my boss that, hey, I can only actually do these tasks but not these others. How do we overcome this risk with micro-credentials? Okay, very good point. So you've got uh, qualifications to do one item. You've done a six-month course rather than a four-year course. Now, after that six months, if you were sick of it, You'd go and you'd, you'd be an unskilled labourer at the moment. Uh, and you'd go on to, to the boss and say, look, I'm an unskilled labourer. But if we could give you a certificate for that, you could go to the boss and say, look, I'm one step higher than an unskilled labourer. I don't pretend to be a builder who can do the whole lot, but I can do a little bit more than if I'd, uh, if six months ago I dropped out. So you're right, it's not the be all and end all. And also there's the danger of all the six-month micro-credentials adding up together and forming a camel instead of a horse. Right? <laughs> so right. we've... We've got to make sure that we don't have a person doing aeronautical engineering for six months and then basket weaving for six months. You know, they've got to, um, there's got to be a continuum. But I guess what we're saying is it's micro-credential is not the be-all and end-all, but it's better than somebody dropping out after nine months and having nothing. Mm. Uh, I mean, one thing that comes up in some of the discussion about micro-credentials is to what extent are we just papering over issues with the recognition of prior learning system. Because if we were able to resolve those RPL issues, maybe we don't actually need micro-credentials as much. Yeah, and, and some people have said that to us and we're taking that, we're, we're listening to that. I mean, that's a very valid point. Um, as long as that um, prior learning is accredited and is consistent, um, there's a, got to be a benchmark, a yardstick. You can't say, well, yeah. So that is a very, very good point. Now, you, met, you mentioned an earn or learn strategy, particularly uh, as it appears to be very much out of the conditions of the pandemic. What do, what do we mean by what, what's the earn or learn strategy all about? 
Well, Adult Learn is uh, in a situation where if you're, um, at the moment, if you're doing both, you're earning and learning. Um, so you're on, you're on a trade um, before the pandemic. So you're working four days and you're, le you're learning one. Uh, we're talking a situation if you lose your job, uh, you should be able to keep that one day. So earn or learn rather than necessarily having to do both. Uh, and there's all sorts of more detail in the report uh, about the, the scope for it. We hate to see the, the alternative being neither. So people say, if I'm not earning and learning, I can't do anything. What we're saying, you, you, sh you should be able to do one or the other. Fantastic. We have a question from uh, one of our viewers, Salvatore Babonis. He's a adjunct scholar here at the CIS. Thanks for being with us, Salvatore. He asks, are universities, and I know that universities aren't specifically uh, the remit of the paper, but I hope you can uh, make a reflection on this. Are universities well-placed to teach skills? Or should they focus on personal development and leave skills training to others? Well, I think that the start of the um, point that Salvatore has just made is that the states do skills, the schools and that, uh, and the, the universities are more. So I'm not an expert and be uh, remiss of me to be able to say, to try to give an expert opinion. But I think there's the scope for all to do more. And I think the universities are working in tandem with the uh, TAFE providers and universities now are providing certificates, et cetera, and things like that. So, but I'm not an expert on that. It's more a common question. Do, do you see a more of a kind of integrated model of universities and and the vet sector working a bit more closely? That's something that, that also comes through in Commonwealth reports of... Yeah, you know, I definitely, definitely. And I think um, it's not sort of... Um, uh, Two mutually, two mutually ex uh, exclusive things. Uh, they can work closer together, definitely. And even um, people, just as universities now, you can do some degree, some um, some units at one university and get credit for that at, the, at, the, at another university. Mm. Uh, maybe not quite as easy uh, moving between TAFE and universities, but it's something we really should explore. Definitely. Now, what do, what do you make of the this issue about course offerings and um, we'll get towards, we'll move toward the end before too long, but what do we do about courses that are being offered that aren't really demonstrating value? Is it a matter of stripping those courses? Do we, how do we communicate that market signal, I guess is where I'm coming from. How do we communicate better to prospective students what degrees they should be doing? Well, we've got to um, allow that for the for the for advise the student and their parents as to the employability after you've finished. Uh, so there's a lot of I mean everyone wants to be a personal trainer, but I mean um, how many jobs are there in personal training? I mean others are, are suggesting. I mean you've heard the concept the concept of securitizing vet, where you get a, um, a provider and say look um, if you train up all these unemployed people in this area and whatever you can keep. Um, or, or the income tax or the payroll tax that would be received from these people. So then the, the provider goes out of their way to make sure the courses they're going to put on will provide jobs and will create them. Once they've got that income stream, then they can securitise that and sell that off to the market. Right? So I'm not, we don't cover that in our report, but that's the sort of thing in the future. But I think if we make it more, we will make students more aware and, and that the job prospects of doing something, I think um, that they have to make their own decision in the end. 
absolutely. William Neal makes a comment more than a question, but thanks for your contribution. Cert four in vacuum cleaning to allow work as a cleaner. I think this gets to your point. You use the illustration of aircon technicians, and I thought that was a, a good illustration. Could you give us a summarize? You know what? Why that was a good example? Well, the, the air, air conditioning mechanic, there's a big shortage of. There's been a shortage for 24 out of the last 25 years, I think. So there's a, a real shortage. And, and that is quite an intricate skill, intricate skill. The one that uh, William Neal just mentioned uh, facetiously about the um, uh, cert for vacuum cleaning builds on the point you and I both make and about the barista. You don't need a cert for in baristaism to, to, to do that. Um, have you, you choose... Um, You've just got to know the basics. With the cleaner, clearly you've probably got to do the cert one on safety. Uh, you've got to do that. You've got to be able to know um, electricity and a few things like that. Um, but certainly you wouldn't need a cert for <laughs> I would hope not. Now, a lot of the reforms, and I've touched on this a little bit, and, and, and you've noted it as well in the, the draftness of recommendations so far, but one thing I think that's refreshing is the boldness of, of the reforms being put forward. How do we actually put this through? How do we take this through to fruition? So how how will how will the recommendations here? How are we going to overcome some of that inertia within, particularly the education and skills sectors, but perhaps more broadly too? Look, that's a very good point. And that is the biggest thing playing on my mind at the moment. Right? So uh, any taxi driver with an iPad can come up with an idea. Here's a fantastic or new, uh, an idea to improve productivity. It's a matter of having the skills to be able to get the public on board. Now, people will often say, oh, we've got this great idea, and but no one seems to accept it. Well, the reason they're not accepting it is because they're not selling it. Right. And that's why we've used a three-stage approach for our Rather than me coming up with what I think are all the answers, we've had the discussion paper, which sets out various themes, calling for other ideas. Now we've got the green paper with 56 ideas from other people. Now I've, I've vetted them to a certain extent and only put the ones in there which I thought were um, had, had legs, had a chance to get further, but they're not my final ones. Uh, and then I'm liaising and liaising and liaising to try to get ownership, to try to find out uh, and to sell the problems to them and say, look, if we don't do something, like the pandemic, people can accept trucks delivering things at 3 o'clock in the morning, making a noise to deliver the toilet paper to Woolworths. People accept that because they know there's a problem. Uh, whether they um, will accept that in two years' time, I don't know. And, and so to get the, to get um, productivity reforms implemented, it's not a matter of blaming people who don't implement it. It's about soul-searching ourselves and saying, why haven't we made a strong argument? be able to convince the opinion makers to do that. Look at so in a sense, when you're when you're speaking to me, I, I, I'm hearing I'm hearing what you're saying about productivity reform and and I, I couldn't agree with you more. But there are many out there that might say that this is a time that rather than talking supply side, we need to be talking about demand side. We need bigger stimulus, we need government to cushion the blow of recession. And that's that's the the appropriate role for government to play at this time. How do how do we counter that narrative? Okay, well I, I'm not saying one way or the other on the demand side. I am basically a supply side person, right? Um, I'm not saying I'm a freshwater economist. I think you guys are. Uh, maybe I'm not. Also, I'm not a saltwater economist either. But I mean, basically, I'm more 
supply side. When it comes to housing, for example, affordable housing, I think the the, the, the real gains are to be made in increasing the supply side rather than giving people a bit of extra money to buy something. Right. So there's probably a role for both. But I have a I have a penchant towards the supply side. Now, in relation to um, the government during the pandemic, should um, um, encourage more demand. Clearly, a role for that, and we've had the, the job, um, the, the, the initiatives, the stimuluses. Uh, my goal is to say, look, eventually, if some of this money is going to be paid back, uh, wouldn't it be better if it were paid back from a bigger pie? So, if we can make uh, more jobs uh, and, that, and then more taxes will be done, um, be paid. So, if we can increase the supply, the, 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 that will help. I'm not making a comment on the demand side. Awesome. You mentioned the tolerance for regulation. <laughs> now, is this to, to what extent do you think this is, or to to overcome regulatory boundaries? What there's some examples you'd like to share with us that you think are good examples where we can use this this opportunity has changed perspectives around those regulations. Well, Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I've got a whole chapter that lists all the regulatory reform that's occurred temporarily during COVID, right? So we accept electronic signatures, we accept um, video stat decks, we accept um, chemists being able to dispense certain uh, certain um, prescriptions, which they wouldn't. We accept the noisy building on Saturday morning of a house down the road, whereas we never used to, right? So people are accepting all that, right? Um, What's going to happen in a year's time? Uh, I'm, I, I'm not as confident that people will accept the change as much then because they won't see the problem as much. So I believe I've got a six-month window, Glenn, to get all these things up and running. When, um, when things stabilise a bit, and I'm not suggesting they'll stabilise properly, there'll be reduced balance sheets around the country. Households will have a lower balance sheet. Businesses will have a, a worse balance sheet, and so will governments. And generally, my, my experience has shown where the balance sheet isn't as good, people tend to revert back to the status quo. Uh, they tend to be, oh, we don't want to make the changes. So I believe we've, there's been some big inroads at state level of um, regulatory reform. My clear recommendation in one of the recommendations in the report is all these recommendations, all these deregulations, keep them for the next 12 months uh, when things get stabilised a little bit. Uh, let's not make a decision today whether they should be scrapped or they should all be kept for 12 months and then people have got to put up a case why they shouldn't remain longer rather than the reverse about saying um, um, why I shouldn't scrap. On that note, the CIS, uh, for followers of the CIS, you'll recall that throughout the, the period of the pandemic, we've identified also a series of regulations that we thought were never needed um, and and we hope that um, to your point that the, a case should be made to reintroduce them rather than rather than to um, to remain as they are now. You indicated to us the, the timeline you're working with. That's around six months to turn around your draft for uh, draft recommendations to final. How can people in the pub? How can members of the public participate and be part of that conversation? It could be wonderful on our website. Um, www.productivity.nsw.gov.au. We've got the report. We're calling for submissions. I think the submissions close shortly, but um, 
if you write a letter and ask for an extension, I'm sure no one's going to jump up and down. It's all productivity, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and we're going to take all, all those into account. And um, as I say, I've been surprised by a lot of the things, very surprised. Um, um, the, 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 the submissions, um, drones, I think I've got a big big section in there where I think farmers, at the moment, farmers are only allowed to use drones where there's line of sight. And I thought, well, if you've got uh, 100,000 hectares, um, you don't want to have to uh, get on your quad bike and drive out to see you know, if a cattle, the cow's hurt himself. You, you just send a, a, a drone up. I thought everyone would like that. I thought there'd be <laughs> reduced accidents. There'd be, you could check um, stock, you could check weeds, you could check water. But um, there's a large group of people who don't want it. They say, look, it's, it's just too dangerous to have um, drones where there's no line of sight. So it's good to get feedback from and reality tests from what uh, the public are thinking. So to answer your question, if people can go on our website, look through the 56 recommendations, comment on one or two of them or all of them, uh, and, and give us the pros and cons and maybe help us to be able to market or sell them. Because I won't be putting all 56 in the final white paper early next year. I'll only be putting the ones where we get a lot of feedback on. Fantastic. That's all we have time for to, for today's episode. Thanks so much for joining us, Peter. It's been really insightful to hear from you. As I mentioned, you can follow Peter's work at the Productivity Commission website. Please, please do get involved. I think that uh, Peter and the team will be really glad to, to hear from you. For CIS viewers, CIS, uh, On Liberty is back this Thursday in our regular 10 a.m. time slot, and our host, Salvatore Babonis, will be there for that. If you enjoyed today's episode, remember to like the video or and subscribe to our channel. You can find out more about the CIS or to make a contribution uh, to support our work, you can do that at cis.org.au slash support. From all of us at the CIS, we hope to see you again. Bye for now. Right.